1: Uh, She's widely recognized as the founder of Modern Forensic Genealogy, which will be really interesting to talk about. So, Colleen, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: What is uh, forensic genealogy? And then tell me about Identifiers International.
2: Okay. Well, forensic genealogy is, you know, uh, the combination of using genealogy for forensic work. Now, it started out more as a hobby definition, you know, applying, say, scientific ideas to just regular genealogy. Uh, but it, it evolved into real, you know, doing real forensic work using genealogy, that is for the legal system. Uh, my company is called Identifinders International. We're based in Southern California. And basically, you know, we do forensic genealogy, we find people, we find and identify people using DNA and genealogy, genetic genealogy, so to speak.
1: Hmm. You find people that are still alive or that have passed away?
2: Uh, Both. I have worked uh, internationally. I've worked in probably 50 countries, not going there, but virtually and having, let's say, minions in the country working for me. Uh, You know, I've worked in 50 countries finding people saying for unclaimed property or as uh, owners of unclaimed properties or relatives of owners. Or uh, in terms of I've been involved in several fraud cases where I had to track down people who knew somebody. You know, that's what I do. You know, I do find live people. Uh, of course, you know, I've done a lot of John and Jane Doe's and, and uh, violent crimes. You know, that's when you do not know who the person is. They may be alive. They may not be alive. But you don't, you know, you don't start out knowing, you know, that to begin with.
1: That's amazing. What? How did you get into this? This is really interesting.
2: In 2000, there were some people who came up with the idea of applying DNA to genealogy. And back then, the, the idea was to use Y-DNA, which is passed along the male line of the family, along with the family name. So the, the idea was to use you know gene- DNA, genetic genealogy, to research your family name in the absence of documentation. Uh, and this caught on because that's what genealogists do. We research a family name, and this would be a new tool. Uh, so I got kind of interested back then. But then around 2011, it occurred to me that the markers that were used for by genealogists to you know research their names uh, were the same, much the same markers as the forensic community was using for uh, you know getting crime scene Y DNA profiles. So I realized that you could take the forensic wide DNA profile and compare it to the genetic genealogy databases to try and find a last name for an assailant, for a violent criminal. Um, and so I started doing that in about 2011. My first case was a Sarah Yarborough case up in uh, King County, Washington. And um, that that's a very interesting story. But then I just kept working on it in about 2015. Was my first success story because you know if you have say Mr. X who's committed a violent crime, you don't know who they are, but you have their Y DNA as produced by the crime lab, and this is this is similar to an adoptee. You know, a living man who's you know doesn't know his biological roots. He gives his Y DNA to the genetic genealogy companies, and he tries to find the last name of his biological father. Well, this is similar except it's you know, the why DNA was derived from a violent crime. But it's the same thing. You don't know who the person is. You don't know who their biological family is, but why DNA can give you a possible last name for that family. And so in 2015, uh, I went, you know, I had done this for several agencies. And then I went to the Phoenix Police Department. I was in Phoenix for a conference. And I went over there they, and uh, I talked to them about this and they wound up giving me the Y profile on a cold case they had called the Phoenix Canal Murders. This was the murder of two women in separate incidents in 1992 and 93. and you know, it had been almost you know 25 years and nothing had come of it. and they had about 2,000 you know suspects on the list, a people of interest on the list. Um, they gave me the Y profile. I produced the name Miller. I found, uh, I think it was six matches in the genetic genealogy databases for their Y-DNA profile from the crime scene and six matches to the name Miller. So I turned that in, wasn't thinking about anything. A few days later, I, got, I was eating dinner with a friend at a restaurant and I got a call from, the, from a detective at eight o'clock at night. So I told her, I'm sorry, I have to take this. And when I took the call, he says, you were right. The name's Miller. And of those 2,000 suspects, you allowed us to narrow it down to five. And of the five, there was just one you just couldn't miss. him. so we collected his DNA surreptitiously, and it matched, and that's it. And um, so when I heard that on the phone, a little funny vignette, it's like I went, oh, my God, they caught him. You know, and the whole restaurant yeah. turned around to look at me. Like, <laughs> and I said, "No, no, sorry, wrong number. Oh, sorry." You know, it was so, so. it was kind of a breakthrough. That was the first case solved using genetic
1: genealogy. It's really cool. But what I mean, this is like a very unusual thing for someone to do. It's really cool you do it. But uh, what what got you into it? Like, how would you? Why were you interested in this? Most people, I think, would be. I don't know. I don't know if they would be.
2: Well, you see, I really don't know where creativity comes from. You know, I can't answer that question. It's just when you put, you know, genealogy in the same brain with somebody who likes forensics. I have a hard science background. You know, I'm always kind of interested in trying new things. You just stir that all up and it comes out to be forensic genealogy and, you know, applying Y-DNA. And I want to say at that time, I had a lot of hate mail from the genealogy community. I just, it really? just never stopped. Yeah. And the, the problem was, you know, they were like, Why? oh my God, big brother has my DNA, run for the hills. But I, I use public data. I mean, everything I used was right online. Uh, you know, I applied a, a little software we had developed to, you know, make the matches and find the matches. But all the data I was using was posted on public websites by the genealogy community. And it was so bizarre. It was so bizarre, this hate reaction. Um, And people were, you know, even the leaders of this community were claiming stuff like, um, you don't know how many people have been falsely convicted using DNA. Oh, my God. Now we're in trouble. You know, I said, well, name one. Name one. And there wasn't any answer to that. But the hate mail continued. And of course, we've gone way beyond that now not just Y-DNA, but we use, it's called autosomal SNP testing. And it's just like Ancestry.com uses, you know, that they they don't use Y-DNA. They, it's a kind of test that accesses more than just the male line. You know, it, it accesses, you know, all the lines of the family and women can take it too. So it's so what, a much more comprehensive test.
1: Yeah. I mean, most people's perception is going to be probably from watching TV and you know seeing the news so what's what's true about what you do and what's you know silly or ridiculous about what's in the news or on tv or on crime shows like what's accurate and what's not just in a general sense
2: yeah well i'll add to i'm really glad you're asking me that question because i'd like to you know correct the record on a number of cases first of all you don't solve it after the next commercial you know that's called the csi effect (laughs) that yeah. the forensic community has been kind of trying to you know set the record straight for a long time you know but even so to go into that in more depth you know it, it, even this new kind of way golden state killer esque way of doing this it's hard you see the the cases in the news every day oh you know 20 28 year old cold case solved using forensic genealogy um, and it makes it look like a hat trick almost. But I want to correct that because I want to tell you, uh, in my experience, it's not a five minute deal or a couple of hour deal. There are cases that have been solved in a very short period of time, like that. But on the average, the solve time is 60 days. And on the average, it's only about half the cases that can be solved using uh, forensic genealogy. And that that includes those really quick ones, and it also includes some that take a year. So when you see it on the news, you know, it, it gives you the idea, oh, this is easy. I'll go and do, you know, I can do this too. Um, or it's really, you know, simple. It's not. It's actually tricky. It's actually, you have to think through it. But most importantly, it ha- It takes time. It
1: really takes well, time. What's the, what are some of the elements of it that make it tricky? Like uh, what's required? To say to someone, I want your DNA. Uh, you know, what's, what, what level of proof is required and what would that look like for, let's say, the police to approach people and say, hey, we think it may be you. We want your DNA.
2: No, no. What they do, you know, look, everybody out there must know about CODIS, right? The, the police have a suspect. They get they collect his DNA. They get enough evidence that they have a probable cause to go arrest that person, they get a judge to say, please go arrest that guy, you get a search warrant for his house. He gives, when he is arrested, he gives another DNA sample that is recorded, videoed, and then that sample is used in court. That's compared against the CODIS database and used in court. So basically, you get a, you know, you get DNA from a criminal. You analyze it and make markers or some profile out of it, and you put it in the CODIS database, and you look for matches. And that determines something about your crime scene, whether the guy committed the crime or not. We do the same thing. We get crime. The agency gives us DNA from a crime scene. We do something with it. We develop markers. We develop a profile. And we upload it to the genetic genealogy databases, and we try and find matches that tell something about whether the guy committed the crime or not. It's the same process. We don't go out necessarily and say, hey, everybody, give your DNA. We want to see if you know, you're know you related to this, this violent criminal or not. You use what's already there in the databases. Now, if you need to, let's say the police have you know, a criminal and he's dead and they need some way to prove they have the right guy, they may go ask his brother. They may go ask his parents for a DNA sample, right? They can do that. In our world, we can do that too. You know, we can ask a a family member. We can ask a first cousin even, second cousin. We can ask for samples. It's called target testing. We can do that. It's not every day all the time. We just don't issue a call, hey, everybody, give you DNA. We really don't do that. And when you do ask somebody, you want to be real particular and real careful about who you ask. You know, you don't want to startle them. You know, you don't want to upset somebody. You just want to get your job done. You want to get some criminal off the street. Or you want to identify a John or Jane Doe. It's the same thing as in the criminal world. I mean, in the law enforcement
1: world. Yeah, I've heard that um you know, obviously getting dna from people that could be family members cousins mm-hmm. parents children etc you know can help you zoom in on someone really quickly mm-hmm. so in, in terms of forensic gene genealogy like who that would be related to someone are useful to get dna from and how far out can you go like second cousins or you know well, multiple generations you know, away
2: there's a couple of questions in that same statement you know codis when you use the codis system, the legal system, the law enforcement system that's been in place for 30 years. It's only good, let's say if you don't know your criminal or he's dead. It's only good like you could go to a brother, your mom or dad, very close family members, maybe a sibling. It's it's good only for very close family members. And but in in genealogy world you could you know you could go as far out i i've identified fifth cousins you know right now i have a case where i have eighth cousins and ninth cousins you know all identified but the further you go out the harder it is to tie in that person to who you need to find out about so genealogy casts a much wider net in terms of who maybe could give you a hint you know, on who that guy is. It's a much wider net. But keep in mind, you know, it's not the legal system. It's just a lead. You know, it can, even if we come out and we said, oh, we figured it out, it's John Smith from Poughkeepsie. We have to turn that into the agency. And at that point, it's the agency's responsibility to follow the legal procedures to collect that person's DNA or arrest him, whatever the situation may be.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize you can go so far out.
2: Yeah, yep, you can. I have a lot of matches right now. I'm working on a case, and pretty much all of you know. As you start connect people in, they all connecting in colonial times in the United States. We have, I don't, you know, it's a it's a big puzzle we're putting together.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
1: Do people hire you for more like prosaic reasons? You know, to to research the genealogy. You know, they they have those shows like. Who do you think you are, and that kind of stuff? What, what, what is your thought on those shows? They seem to like, I don't know, be unbelievably amazing at tracing people back. Do they? Are they spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars to to help those stars to find their genealogy and only picking the ones that they can actually find results for?
2: I'm not into that. You know, I try not to do, con- you know, all the normal genealogy stuff. I'm really, it. it's sort of not interesting to me after 40 years, or, you know, I'm quite good at it. Um, but I I do believe that, of course, those production companies have production teams. You know, they have people that they can call it archives, you know, and hire around the world. They have the budget for that. Um, they may have people on the ground in various cities that they know, you know, they're going to need. Um, so I don't know how much the budget is, but of course, it's much greater than, say, myself, just working on my own with a few people. Um, And I think they're entertaining. I think it opens up people's eyes on what can be done. I think there's always a fascination for celebrities and the fact that they're normal people too. And they, grandma and grandpa were, you know, pioneers to the West, just like everyone else's. So I think there's a, you know, an interest of time for that. It's very good. It's not particularly what I do, but, you know, it's fine. It's enjoyable. It's entertaining.
1: Yeah. Well, why do you do what you do? There must be, I, I was expecting you to say, like, there was some you know, huge seminal event in your life that, that caused you to work in this area. Like, you know, I, I think what you do is pretty unusual, you know, at a cocktail party. I'm sure people would like, love to talk to you. But, like, why do you do what you do?
2: Well, first, I don't go to a lot of cocktail parties just for that reason. Because I don't, <laughs> don't want to be the center of the party. You know, I want to enjoy the party. I don't want to be the entertainment. For the party. but besides that, uh, what I think what I, I like most is just the, the human you know getting into the human nature. you know why do people do the things they do? I do want to say I never got interested in this. I was born interested in it. Um, you know it's I, I was I, I tell people I'm I really was born in New Orleans and I grew up around um, you know all four grandparents. I knew them until I was an adult, all four of them. I knew their aunts and uncles. I knew some of their brothers and sisters. I mean, a huge family. So growing up in that environment, not only where it was, but who I grew up around. I grew up around living history. And that now I realize the the, magnificent gift that was. So, you know, in that regard, I never became interested in this. I was born interested any more than I was. I became female or became Irish. I was born that way. Um, and, and so along the way, of course, you know, just being good in science and, you know, studying science and going into physics, and then I have a doctorate in nuclear physics, you know, that that wires you to be thinking in a certain logical way. And, you know, you apply that to anything you do. I had a conversation this morning with a friend on how to boil eggs, hard, make hard boiled eggs. And it was so, you know, kind of everything we tried, it was so technical and so interesting, but you know, it's who you are and how you solve problems in your life. So huh. you, you get to genealogy, and you say, "Hmm, I have a problem. How do I find that guy's Civil War record, or how do I figure out who he was that committed that crime?" And then you bring all your problem-solving tools that you've learned in life, and that's what happens.
1: Well, what do you think makes you good at it, or what makes you the human bloodhound for? Uh forensic
2: genealogy? Um, you know, that's another good question. I have to say this. What I think is when I go and talk at seminars, sometimes I'm part of other, you know, a catalog of speakers. There are other speakers there that talk about, God, so many interesting things like electronic surveillance. They talk about fake 911 calls, for example. They talk about stage crime scenes. Um and you know, many other topics. And I I think one of the things is I try and sit in as many of those talks as I can. And because I'm invited to speak, I have access to those talks. Um I'm a member of the V Society or, and I just sat in on a talk on um staged, it was uh you know, suicide notes, how to tell a fake suicide note from a real one. And you know, it was forensic linguistics and it was you know, unbelievably fascinating. It was so good. And I think we have one coming up on blood splatter interpretation. And so I sit in, you know, what makes me good, I think, is I'm so well-rounded. You know, I, I try and soak in as much as I can about as many topics as I can, even if it's not directly forensic genealogy. It It opens my mind to psychology or how people act or how to tell the good stuff from the bad stuff, you know, the true stuff from the false stuff, you know, how to think through. And again, you know, how to think through a problem. I have that technical background, that logical kind of way of analyzing things that also helps. So I think that's it. It's just, I'm very, I'm well-rounded. I've tried to keep that, you know, I, I speak several languages. So, you know, I have no you know, and that, and that in itself is very good. It, it bends your mind to think in many different directions, many different interpretations. So I think- Well, do you,
1: do you have, um, is there a case that you could speak about that really was very curious and unusual? And, you know, can you talk about what made a breakthrough in the case? Do you have any examples in your head of yeah. really memorable ones for yourself?
2: Well, you know, I told you the Phoenix Canal murders was very interesting because that was out of the blue. Nobody had ever solved a case using forensic genealogy or genetic genealogy before. So that call was the beginning of an era, right? I mean, it was the first case solved using genetic forensic genealogy. Um, so, and I didn't realize what that would, you know, would happen after that. But uh, the other case I'd highlight is the Sarah Yarborough case. I mentioned this, the first case I ever thought to do. Um, that was 2011 in King County. And the reason that one was, that also was the actually maybe the beginning of the era, because in that case, um, it, uh, interesting, I came up with the name Fuller for that assailant who killed Sarah Yarborough. And of course, I am matching the Y DNA profile from the crime scene to the genetic genealogy databases for looking for a name. And I come up with the name Fuller. So there are genealogists in the database who provided that match, and I traced their family to a Robert Fuller in Massachusetts in the 1630s. He was not on the Mayflower, but he was related to the Mayflower people. Wow. So it, you know, here's here's a very interesting case where we don't know who killed this girl, but we know his genealogy back to the 1600s. Weird. Huh. So, How would
1: you know that uh, without knowing him though?
2: Because the genealogists he matched all went back to the Robert Fuller, the same guy. So you have to suppose if if I have six, how many, there were 10 or a group that all went back, all their Y profiles matched, and they all went back to Robert Fuller. They, the male line of the family was the same guy. It was descendants of that same guy. So our unknown, our Mr. X had to be a descendant too. You make that assumption because there's so much, so many matches and he doesn't match anybody else but these Fullers. So, okay, fast forward, the girl who died had a classmate named Elizabeth Fuller. Elizabeth Fuller was one of five daughters. So can't none of those can be the killer. It, this, this suspicion falls on her father, William Fuller. So he goes and he gives his DNA. He was ruled out as the killer. He didn't match CODIS. His DNA did not match the crime scene DNA. He was ruled out as the father of the killer. But it turned out his Y profile matched the killer. And he was descended from Robert Fuller as well. So not only did we have the genealogy of Mr. X, we had a cousin. But we just didn't know how close the the cousin could have been 10th cousins. We didn't know.
1: Oh, you can't tell how close they are Mm -hmm. in terms of certain similarities?
2: No, not with the Y DNA. That's carried along the male line intact. You have the same Y DNA as your father does, and his father, and his, father, and his father. You know, with yeah, but minor- well, wouldn't
1: you be able to once you get within a family, even if it's many generations out? I would think that that would really narrow. You could start looking for all the associates of that person in their mm-hmm. genealogy, and then see if there's, you know, where does the branch come off to this new this new person, you know?
2: Well, you are correct. You could do that. And you could say, which Fuller's wind, wound up in the Pacific Northwest? And I did that. But unfortunately, Robert Fuller lived in 1630. And that means he's got tens of thousands of Fuller descendants. You know, you cannot trace that huge family. He probably has 10,000 or more male males named Fuller that descend from him.
1: You know, oh, so very I-,
2: interesting. I Yeah. So anyway, fast forward, we we got the case last year and we wound up using, you know, the big genealogy. I call it the SNP testing genealogy. And we found the man who committed the crime or he's allegedly committed the crime. His name is Patrick Nicholas. So the first question is, how come he's not named Fuller? And the answer is because his grandfather was adopted. And his grandfather was adopted in Albany, uh, New York, maybe 1910-ish. He, the, he was an orphan. He was put on a train, the orphan train, and sent into the Midwest. And the orphan train collected the orphans from New York, put them on a train. And when the train stopped at the station, all the kids would get off the train and the families would come out and pick which ones they wanted. And then the rest of the kids would go to the next stop. And the grandfather was adopted by the Nicholas family. So Mr. X's last name was Nicholas. So the other part is that legally, this man had had avoided arrest three times. He had committed first degree rape. He was in prison for first degree rape in the 80s. But CODIS didn't kick in until about 91, 92. So he wasn't in CODIS. And they should have gone back and collected his DNA anyway for that legal database. And they didn't do it. So this girl was murdered in 91. You know, he would have been caught within a year or two, but it didn't happen. So then he was, uh, he was arrested for molesting his stepdaughters. And the mother would not not testify against him. So he pled down and he didn't have to give his DNA a second time because the, fe- the lower offense didn't require it. And then <laughs> the third third time, his brother was arrested for first degree rape. And the brother was in prison. Now, Washington State is not a familial search state. So that means they can't use the brother's DNA to search for near relatives. So he got off a third time. You know, you got that. So finally, genealogy, we proved it. We did it. But it had a lot of legal consequences and it had a lot of loopholes in the genealogy as well.
1: And this brings up a question. If, um, If someone uses 23andMe, or Ancestry, or one of these services, is their DNA uh, subpoenaable without their consent?
2: No, it is not. Well, 23andMe, Ancestry, those companies do not, do not do forensics at all. And Ancestry.com, if you go to their website, they explain how many uh, subpoenas, or they, I think subpoena is the word, they have fought off during that year for their data. You know, they oh, will. okay. You know, they'll give in if it's a credit card problem, you know, something like that. They'll cooperate, but not for their data. And so the only way that law enforcement will ever use your data is that your data belongs to you. You can download it from, say, Ancestry, and you can upload it to GEDmatch, which is a third-party website not associated with any of the companies. And it's like a, a watering hole for genealogists to do their work. So if I test with Ancestry and I go, I'm stuck in Ancestry. I can't see 23andMe matches unless I download my results. I put them on the GEDmatch database and there are 23andMe people there too, you know, so I can start to access more people. There are more tools there. And if I go to GEDmatch, I have to agree to allow law enforcement to see if I'm a match to their killer. You know, I have to opt in, so to speak, to law enforcement. So the only way that law enforcement can even see your DNA is for you to agree to that, to upload it to GEDmatch and agree to allow them to see your results. Now, the other thing is Family Tree DNA is a, one of those direct-to-consumer companies. And about a year ago or more, they uh, were discovered that they were cooperating with law enforcement and allowing law enforcement to use their databases. There was a lot of conflict. The genealogists were very upset about that. But they went ahead anyway, and now law enforcement, you know, they've solved cases by using that extra data. So there's good and bad in that. So, But, uh, you know, again, Family Tree won't just pour out the data onto the websites, right? They, It's internal to their company, and they allow law enforcement. They are opt-in by default. So once you test with them, you have to go through a procedure to get your stuff like hidden from law enforcement and most genealogists don't even go there. So even though they're unhappy, they don't change it.
1: Oh, interesting. Are there any uh, new technologies that you're experimenting with or ones that show a lot of promise that are coming?
2: Uh, yeah, we always are. Uh, there is, um, uh, you know, we are looking at more uh, new techniques for degraded DNA. Um, I have some research going in that area because, you know, the, the whole, point in DNA is doing more and more with less and less. So you'll have violent crimes where there's, say, DNA, touch DNA, or there's DNA in a mixture, um, you know, or DNA that's highly degraded that you would really like to analyze, except you have to develop a new technique for deconvolving the mixture or for using such low-level DNA or for repairing DNA so that it it you can actually get it to a point you can use it. Um, we're doing that. And John and Jane Doe's, a lot of skeletal remains have very bad DNA associated because of all the environmental insults they've experienced. So part of our research is to do more and more with less and less. We're also doing research on facial reconstruction. We're doing uh, research on a mapping algorithm where you can basically map you know, all your all your matches in your database, you can find out where they lived and where they crossed paths and kind of make a map on where you think Mr. X comes from. So we have various areas of research besides just solving cases like we like to do.
1: Are there any um, grand challenges you're working on? Like finding all the descendants of Jesus or I don't well, know one of these mysteries has been around for hundreds of years for thousands.
2: Um, well, I'm still working on the Abraham Lincoln DNA uh, project off and on trying to trace his, it started out as, did he have orphan diseases? Did he have various genetic diseases? And it evolved into trying to trace his genealogy, which is very tricky because his uh, mother died when he was nine. I'm working on that. I, I work a lot on Holocaust, tracing Holocaust survivors, their families, their parents. And some of those cases I've worked on for a decade or more. And one, we're wow. very close uh, so that's more like conventional genealogy on steroids, because you've got to access. I went to Berlin and Warsaw on one case a couple of years ago. You know, I don't I don't travel a lot. But like I said, I get get people to help me. You know, the Holocaust Museum is very good. They've helped me a lot. Um, uh, you know, a local genealogists in Warsaw have helped me get in touch with the various archives and speak to speak Polish, you know. So, the grant, I guess, in the category of grand challenge, beside all the research, is the Holocaust survivors and finding their families. That's near and dear to my heart.
1: Yeah, that's very, very cool. Um, For people that want to enter the field, do you have any recommendations on what they should do to prepare themselves or where they can find more info?
2: Yes, I do. What you need to do if you want to get into forensic genealogy and do this cool stuff, start on adoption searches. It's called Misattributed paternity or non-paternity. Um, like I said, you know, a, a person DNA from a crime scene, you don't know who it belongs to. But that's just like a John or Jane Doe or an adoptee. You know, they walk into it not really knowing who they are, and they'd like to find their parents. So my suggestion is, there are many adoptees, there are many people online looking for help. Do a bunch of adoption searches. See, get get the drill. Don't just inhabit Ancestry. Don't get somebody, an adoptee who's been tested at Ancestry. Right now, the ancestry is so big, I think they have 20 million people on their database, that there's over a 50-50 chance that you'll find somebody close enough that it's kind of easy to find their families. But find, you know, find a whole bunch of adoption searches, get oiled and go to GEDmatch. Don't just inhabit Ancestry, or it's a lot easier work with people on Jedmatch and learn those tools, learn those tricks, do a bunch of hard cases that will tell you how to think. Now, when you step into forensic genealogy, say, if you're working for me, you basically go undercover because you're not advertising what the case is. You know, you're not saying, hey, uh, the world match here, you know, here's this violent crime, this rape from, you know, Arizona. You, you don't want to say anything. You have to like go into, research mode where you can see people, the ones that opt in, but they can't see you. So, you know, you can't reach out to people like you can when you're doing adoption searches. You don't have the big databases you have when you have adoption searches. I've had people work for me who are actually good at it, but they have never used JedMatch, and so they're very limited. You know, they they it's harder for them you know, because they're not used to it. So if you're not good at if you don't have the skill in adoption searches, once you start being restricted on who you can reach out to and who you can get to help you, it gets even harder.
1: What would make a, a case like incredibly difficult? What are some of the factors?
2: Well, some of the factors, that's easy. First of all, cases are biased toward Caucasian Europeans because the databases are, that's who does genealogy and the databases are made from data, from genealogists who are doing this. Um, So case, uh, a Native American or African American case would tend to be a lot harder. Um, Also, it's possible that there are areas of the country that are highly intermarried. It's called endogamy. If you, we had a case from West Virginia, and I can tell you from experience that everyone in West Virginia is related to everyone else in West Virginia. So you don't have this very clean family tree you're building because every time you find somebody, you know, their mother and father's related three times, you know, so you can't, it's very difficult to untangle that kind of stuff, you know, and then uh, also you may have many matches that connect very in very distant, very distantly. And then, so you have to work very hard to find out where they overlap, you know, how this all, all these matches come together and make one big family tree, whatever we're doing there. Um, There are new tools developed all the time that help you figure out who's related to whom and where they are on the tree. Uh, But, uh, you know, these trees can get up to 40,000 people. Sometimes the trees, you know, the people in those trees can be highly intermarried. They can be part African-American. You know, we have a case that's part California Hispanic um, from El Salvador, from Guatemala, part is Texas and part is French Canadian. So how do you how do you put all that together into one person to identify that one Jane Doe at the end of that? You know, it's it's complicated.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. Um, What about the um, the forensic evidence itself? You know, uh, you said from skeletons, it's not easy to get DNA. Where do you get it from? The marrow? Um, is hair, teeth? I mean, like for, for cases where someone has passed away, what are some of the things that can be used for data that are worthwhile and difficult versus difficult?
2: Well, that's a good question. And part of my work is with the International Commission on Missing Persons who does who do some extractions for me. You have the bones and you have certain bone elements that are um you know, more conducive to giving you DNA, like molars, because the enamel in your teeth is the hardest substance in your body. So when you, uh, you know, if you find skeletal remains, you know, the teeth are going to protect the soft tissue more than any other element in your body. So you look for the teeth, you look for incisors, you look for the teeth that have not been compromised. So the soft tissue is probably intact. Um, you can use the Petrus bone, which is on the side of your face, but a lot of people don't want to use that because if you want to do a facial reconstruction, you know, you ruin your chance because that bone's going to be gone. Um, the bone, the DNA is actually not so much in the marrow, but in the matrix of the bone. You know, the bone is actually really spongy in, in reality. It hardens as you get older, but still it has a matrix, you know, and the DNA is like kind of hiding in those nooks and crannies in the matrix. So basically, you take a bone and you smash it, smash it, smash it. This machine, you know, you put in a little capsule with a weight and the machine rocks back and forth and pulverizes the bone into powder. And then you put the powder in certain chemistry. I'm not the one to speak about that. And it, it, it causes the bone uh, powder to dissolve and release the DNA. And you can separate the DNA from the rest of the liquid. And there you have it if the bones are very old or have been out in the weather, um, you know, DNA will degrade, you know, hot weather, humid weather, um, you know, so you never know. We've had cases that are the remains were only a couple of years old and it was very difficult to get DNA. And then we had one that was a hundred years old and it was fine. It was a cave. It was a cave body, a body preserved in a cave over a hundred years old. So uh, we thought it was a recent, you know, remains of somebody who died, but it was actually when we finished it, it was a hundred years old. So DNA is really cool. Yeah. DNA is funny. Now, uh, would you mind if I answered the question again about what makes this difficult?
1: Yeah, sure. Tell
2: me. Okay. Look what you do when you get your, you put your DNA from your Mr. X into the GEDmatch database, let's say, and basically what happens is you see a lot of matches there and that means people that are related to your Mr. X and it tells you how much DNA they share with Mr. X as an indication of how closely they are related you don't know who these people are but you find out you use facebook you use their email address their screen name you figure out who they are so you have a list of people who are related to your Mr. X but you don't know how how they're related yet. So you build family trees for each one of those people. Let's say the top 20 people. Actually, a GEDmatch list may have 1,000 people on it, but the ones at the top are the real close ones, the closer ones. So you build these trees out, and suddenly you see that the trees are starting to connect. Because if all these people are related to Mr. X, then some of them, at least some of them, are going to be related to each other. So as you keep building these 20 trees out, they're going to connect, 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 connect. And if you do your job in a simple case, you're going to find that 10 of those connect with each other. There's one group and 10 others connect with each other. And that's the second group. But the two groups don't connect to each other. And you, that, they, what you have in front of you is the family tree for mom and the family tree for dad the parent, assuming the parents are not related. So you wind up taking the 20, simple example, and connecting these people and coming up. Once you have the two groups, you find somebody from one group who married somebody from the other group. And one of their children will be who you're looking for because that person's connected to every, all the matches on both groups. So what can make it more difficult is the following. First of all, very first, if If dad had a baby out of wedlock, who's not in the genealogy, he never said anything. He had a child out of wedlock. So when we connect and we see, connect the two groups, and we see the children in front of us, we can account for all the children and the killer isn't there. So how how
1: often um, is there an embarrassing, oops, (laughs) or I didn't know, you know, uh, mm -hmm. a kid out of wedlock. How often does that happen?
2: Uh, more than we'd like, a few percent of the time. I had one where there was an oops, and then dad was also an oops. <laughs> so Did he know? Uh, well, we don't know, because I think they were both deceased. But, we, you know, anyway, it was solved because there was adoption records and there was all kinds. But uh, so, first of all, you may see all the kids, but the person you're looking for is not there. So he was an oops. All right. So that's the first complication. And another one is if mom and dad are related, because then you don't have these two separate groups, you know, that you can find mom, married dad, and there's a connection. It could be it's just one group. And, you know, that would be like if the guy is from West Virginia and both the parents are related to each other. So that's another complication, right? Is there
1: is there software where let's say you get, I don't know, a thousand matches and Jed, as you were saying, Mm-hmm. Um, is there software now that looks at the degree of similarity between all of them to help you, like, expedite creating trees and associations? Yeah, or, they, you know, could you make yeah. software like that?
2: Yeah, well, there's a lot of tools on GedMatch. For example, there's a tool called "Are Your Parents Related." So what that does is it looks for DNA. You know, you have two chromosomes for in each pair. One's from mom, one's from dad. So it looks for DNA that's common between those two chromosomes, which means you got the same DNA from mom as you got from dad and therefore mom and dad are related. So it says, are your parents related? And this, you know, and, and you hope the answer is no, but that helps you say, because we had that case from Virginia, West Virginia, are your parents related? We knew the gal was from West Virginia because all of her matches were from West Virginia and yet her parents were not related. So that was really interesting. And I predicted one of her parents is from somewhere else. And I was right, because what happened in that case, we didn't use 20 matches. We used almost 200. And they were all related to her mother's side from West Virginia, except for maybe one or two distant ones. Her mother was from West Virginia. Her father was from Germany. So he basically had nobody in the database. He had no real relatives. He was from another country. So okay, that's it. so that tool though. Are your parents related? Helped us know that that what we were seeing was probably one parent and not the other. Um, there are other tools that are triangulation tools, so that Mr. X, let's say Mr. X has John Smith and Jane Jones on the list. You have a tool that can see if John and Jane are related, because if they are not, they may be on different branches of the family right? And if they are, they're on the same branch. So that's a very coarse type statement, helping you sort out those two groups I described earlier for mom's side and dad's side. So there are plenty of tools and and we're still, like I'm working on a mapping routine that if I took those 20 family trees and I threw them on Google Earth, where do those people overlap geographically? You know, John Smith has 10 branches to his family, Jane Jones has 10 branches, you know, maybe they, you know, overlap somewhere. And then if I look on a map, I can say, oh, you know, John Smith had relatives in Detroit in the 1930s. And so did Jane Jones. OK, so let me look in that area and their family trees to see where they overlap. Maybe that's where they kind of connect. So, you know, there's, that's pretty there's cool. All, yeah. yeah, there's all kind of tools out there.
1: Have you um, researched your own family like crazy or? you like the cobbler's son with no shoes
2: and you don't care. No, I that's why I do all this, because I pretty much got to the bottom of my research. A cousin just really sent me a whole bunch of new stuff for the first time in about 25 years because I hadn't, you know, hadn't gone back recently and looked at the, you know, the old newspapers, you know, and it turned out there were a few articles about relatives of mine that were very interesting that I didn't I hadn't thought to go back because I got tired of looking. And he found some Civil War records. He was very clever about that. And that answered a couple of other mystery questions. But I pretty much have it. The only problem is the the branch of my family from Ireland probably will be forever a mystery. Because I've been to Ireland 10 times. I pretty much cleaned out the country of anything I'm going to find. And <laughs> You know, even my brother doesn't match any other Fitzpatrick. So, you know, I knew they were from outer space. I knew it. I knew it and there. You got proof, you know, there. The, so, you know, I just, there's really, that will be forever a mystery. I think, I don't think I ever find, he could have changed his name or something. I don't know what's going on, but so I have researched like crazy. There are some mysteries I think I will never solve.
1: Yeah. Is there anyone that you've ever looked at that appears to have like no connections to anybody? They just, they're like this, I don't know. They just seem to come out of nowhere, you know, genealogically.
2: Um, I said, you know, right now I'm working on a case where all the matches go to Colonial Virginia. You know, uh, there's, like I said, the two groups and the connecting, you know, the, the 20 tops and you try and see how they overlap to try and eventually get to your Mr. X. All those connections are in Colonial Virginia. So I don't know what this guy's doing. You know, it seems like genealogy is so popular. I mean, the guy's Caucasian European, you know, that's all true uh, but how come he doesn't have any relatives closer than that you know is he i don't know why he's like it's a vacuum if you took the test you know if i took the test any ordinary american walking down the street you're gonna find matches we call them dna cousins that are certainly closer somewhere than colonial virginia but this guy i don't know he could be from another planet i don't know. Um, and I had another case where the guy was from Yemen. We know for many reasons why he was from Yemen. And, you know, I, you do it, I do it. I'll have a couple of thousand matches on Jedmatch. This guy had like 10 and they were all eighth cousins just because there's no Ye- Yemenis people from Yemen in the in the database. So oh. can't say he's from outer space, but almost.
1: I guess if you got someone's DNA that was like in the, you know, the, the Yanomami or something like in, yeah. in the rainforest, you know, they would yeah. probably have zero matches.
2: Yes, you may. Yeah. They, yeah. It's a problem. You're catching on. that? It's as good as the database you have to work with. Makes you know, sense. Okay. Right. So, you know, if you're Native American, you're not going to find a whole lot of, ma- if you're from Yemen, you're not going to find a whole lot of, ma- if you're from the rainforest of Africa, or South America, you're not going to find a whole lot of matches in there.
1: So the last question, what do you see as the future of your work You know, over the next 10 years, maybe longer? What's new that's coming that's interesting?
2: Um, I think that we're going to uh, see um, you know, more and more with less and less. I think we're going to solve a lot of cases that we thought were beyond modern technology. And it's going to be more cohesive with the rest of the forensic endeavors. I think... Uh, people are going to realize this is not a magic cure for the common cold case. It's not something you do after the next commercial. You know, you don't, and that, in spite of all the, um, oh my God, I call it the oh my God era. I think that the oh my God era is is fading and people are really, the agencies I work with are having more of a practical type look at how this really works. And, you know they they are forming their own uh, forensic genetic genealogy units. The detectives are learning how to do this, and so I think it's going to be like a, a very more coordinated, more uh, sane, more practical tool than it is that is re- then it is regarded as right now. I think more tools like the mapping, I say, will be pulled in, the facial, better facial reconstruction, more uh, work with degraded DNA, low-level DNA, touch DNA, mixtures, you know, mixtures can be hard to separate. If you have a sexual assault, you'll have female and male DNA mixed together for obvious reasons, and it's trick to separate them. I think there'll be more research on that using genetic genealogy. That's already starting to be done. Um, So I think that um, there's going to be really some very interesting things coming along, more genealogy tools. I think it's going to be fascinating what we will be able to do that we can't do today.
1: Very good. Well, Colleen, it's been really cool to talk to you. You're doing interesting stuff and I appreciate you being here.
2: Listen, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. You've asked some very interesting and good questions that need to be
1: asked. Oh, thank you. Oh, and for people that want to uh, contact you about your services, where can they go?
2: They can contact me. My website, which needs to be updated, by the way, is identifinders.com. I-D-E-N-T-I-F-I-N-D-E-R-S. That's Identity Finders, Identifinders. You can also Gmail me at cfitsp0425 at Gmail. Uh, I have a blog, identifinders.wordpress.com. I'm on Facebook, Forensic Genealogy Facebook page. So I'm out there. You can Google my name. You can find me. I'm, I'll be glad to you know, help where I can.
0: Very good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.